Wow, aren't you happy you're living for the glory of God? There was something that Laura said during the ordination about her being um, ordained as an elder. She said, I don't know how people do life without God. All these things are hard and difficult. Even when you have God, how do you do it without God? And I was sitting back there going, they don't. <laughs> they fall apart. That's why we have high suicide rates. That's why we have tons of drugs and addictions. That's why we have divorces. That's why we have crime and corruption. They don't. Life does not happen without Christ. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. But as you're turning there, I just want to encourage you with a sermon before the sermon. And that is just what I was sensing in my heart as we were worshiping. And that is God's glory is all that we live for. And when you do that, you can't be disappointed what happens in life. Like, we can go through temporary disappointment. I don't want to say, like, our hearts won't be broken, obviously. Uh, even Paul was heartbroken over what was happening with Israel. But ultimately, you know when you're living for God's glory that it's all going to work out in the end. You know, when I look at my life and I go, although there, there, there was these plans and I wanted them to be great and big and some of them didn't work out, I don't look back at that and go, that's a loss. No, that was a lesson to trust God in the midst of whatever I went through. Are you guys tracking with me? And so remember to live for God's glory in every situation because I love how it says, you know, mountaintops and valley lows. I mean, that's life. And that my friends, most of us here are young. I'm one of the only folks with gray hair. I love seeing some new folks come when they got the gray hair, the gray hair crew. And I just want to tell you that it doesn't change. Just a quick testimony. We'll be giving you, by God's grace, the end of the year report at the beginning of January. But since I'm just feeling led of the Lord, let me give you a little sneak peek. We have had this year by far the greatest year financially we ever had, thanks to you and your giving. Praise God. Amen. And my wife and I, taken care of, lacking nothing, everything taken care of, the church, more than ever before. And yet, at the same time, I'm having financial concerns. And you might be thinking to yourself, how is that possible? You've had the most amount of money come into the church. Your family's taken care of because it's always more money, more problems. That's the way it always is. Because now it's like, well, what do you do with this much? How do you invest it into here? Oh, the size of the building. Should we stay at this building? Should we start looking for other buildings? If we go to another building, do we leave somebody here to pass this church? Start another church over there. Ah, you know what I'm saying? And then with my family, now I got money in the bank, and now we're looking for a place to live, and, and we're looking for a place. And do we go for this budget or that budget? Do I take money out of this account and put it into the house? Is equity in house going to be better than what I'm doing in the stocks and the crypto? Ah, is anybody with me? Does anybody know more money, more problems? Some people are like, I got, little, I got little money but big problems. I know sometimes it flip-flops like that, but seriously, if you talk to anybody that's coming up, and then, and, you know, because I've been at this over 20 years. The church here is quite a bit old. We're not, we're not new to this. We've been doing this, okay? And, and I'll just tell you, if you talk to successful people, at every point of their life, they have to face those challenges. So what am I doing at this point? I can't go to the bank account and say, oh, you know, I need more money because really, I don't even have a money problem right now. I have a wisdom problem. The, the amount of the money that I have doesn't tell me where I'm supposed to move if I'm looking for a house. You all tracking with me? I mean, you, you understand like there's certain areas, but do I live, you know, like when you're putting in Zillow, like do I live here? Do I live here? Do I live? There's like 20 places to look at. And then when we're looking at a church building, let's say we have money to start investing in that church building. That doesn't mean now we know where we're going to go or how we're going to do it here. So a lot of times we think like, God, just give me more stuff. Give me more stuff, and then that will fix all the stuff that I have problems with. And that is not true. We have to live for God. God's glory. 
Because God's glory doesn't change with the stuff. So what am I saying right now just personally? What am I saying personally? God, for your glory, give me the best house for my family. You see how that mindset changes everything. I know it sounds cheesy and it sounds churchy and corny, but a lot of things that came through the church and through our history we need to get a hold of. We need to live for that glory of God. Because right now, I mean, can, can you tell me what house I'm supposed to be at? Uh, my realtor can't even tell me that. I need to pray, God, what house is going to give you the most glory? Where can I put my family? What yard am I supposed to have? What community am I supposed to be in? Same thing here with the church. Can you tell me something that I don't know or the elders don't know about how do we grow and expand this church so that when we have bigger functions, we can all have a seat instead of it all being, you know, overflow? Do you know how to leave a church here and start a new church over there without breaking both of them at the same time? Do you know who we're supposed to do that with? Come on, Brother Calvin. I know you were praying, man, but do you got all those answers? Can I peek into your prayer journal? Turn to page 455. There's the answer of Brother Calvin's prayer journal. Pastor need to do this, 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 and this. Sometimes I just wish for fun I could hand it over to Miss, Mrs. Know-it-all and Mr. Know-it-all and just like do a virtual watch them crash the whole church and then go, see, that's why we don't just go with what you say. You know, because I fear God. And, and at the end of the day, what am I saying about this church building for the glory of God? If God gets glory out of us being here, then we're going to stay here. We've got a church full of kids. How many would love to see what we call our church campus? How many would love to see all of this space have a church just for children area? You go, man, there are churches that I go to, man, it looks like Disney World, and you walk in, Children's Center, 20-foot, 30-foot high walls. They got rock climbing up in there. How many know what I'm talking about? Some of y'all don't want to talk about because you're like, man, I go to Metro Praise. We don't talk about that here. Children play on the floor. That's children's church, child. Where's church for the kids? In church as a kid. That's children's church. A child's in church. There it is. You know, I mean, I, tell me, I, come on, man. You, you know you can tell me this. I can tell you this. Man, don't you have dreams for what we want to do with the community? You know, look at our kitchen back there. We have a sink. That's all we got. <laughs> look at our sink. We got a sink and a mini fridge, man. I want to feed the whole community. You know, we've tried to put, build us. Uh, we tried to build that kind of stuff. And then we, we had it, by the way. We had a cafe one time in here. We were doing all that. And then the church grew. We had to tear it down. And it looked weird having a cafe in the middle of the sanctuary. You guys tracking with me? And then you just see other people getting blessed. And then sometimes. Let's be honest. Other people getting blessed can be stressed to you. You know, I'm looking at other people, and I, I saw they bought their home before the markets, you know, skyrocketed. I'm like, man, you blessed. You are so blessed. Oh, you're blessed. And I'm like thinking, why didn't I do that, you know? And that's just the way it's like because I'm like, if I would have bought a year ago, I would have had, I could have get 20% more for my money right now. And then my landlord, he decided to do this. And, I, and I'm thinking to myself, well, hold on. That's another person's story. This is my story. God's going to get glory out of my story. God's going to get glory out of your story. That's their story. They already came up 20%. God told somebody to move a year ago, and they up 20% right now in the housing market. Maybe even more. God bless you. That's your story. And we can't get jealous at other people's glory because we don't know their story. When somebody will see us, they'll say, you know, one day when we get there, somebody say there, when I'm at a place called there where some more dreams have come true, people are going to be like, oh, look at you, look at you. But I'm going to say, I didn't start at this place called there. I had to start at a place called over there. Not where I'm at here called there. I started over there, a place called here. See, here is not there, but one day there becomes here, but you had to start way over there. I'm not playing word games, but are you guys tracking with me? There's a place called here. Somebody say right here. And there's a place called there. 
How many know you living in some there right now? Places you used to look at. See, I used to look at one day I'm going to be married, but I was here single, and, and I was looking there at one day I was going to get married, but now I'm at a place called there. And then people now criticize, and they say, well, Pastor, you know, it's so easy for you because you married. You don't know what sexual temptation is like. But they don't know what it was like for me over there, over there, back in that place called here of singleness. I was single as a Pringle for 10 years. Are you listening? 10 years I had to wait. See, now you look at me being fruitful and multiplying six kids because that's the glory that came from the story. Amen. Galatians chapter 4 literally has nothing to do with what I just talked about. But that song did. That song did. Can I give you a sermon after the sermon now? Let's go to Galatians chapter 4 and talk about how God sets us free from the Old Testament law into a New Testament law, going verse by verse. This is deep, but I promise those of you who are here and you're studying this, you're going to grow through this. I'm growing. Is anybody else growing in Galatians? Looking at some that have been here for a while. Amen. Let's, let's go through it. We're going to read the whole chapter verse by verse, and we'll try to interject some teaching along the way. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. So let me say the old covenant. We've learned that's what it is. I'll explain it more in just a moment, but I just want you to track with what he's saying. But when the time, but when the set time, rather, had fully come, God sent his son. What's his name? Jesus. We're talking about Jesus coming, born of a woman. That's what we'll be celebrating during Christmas time. Born under the law. That means he was a Jewish man circumcised on the eighth day, followed Jewish customs to redeem those under the law. Those like the Jewish people living by those laws of Moses, 613, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Notice the Trinity. The Father sends the spirit via the Son. Does everybody see that there? God is generally referred to as the Father. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit, and the Son we know is Jesus. is in our hearts. And the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. The Spirit calls out, Abba, Father. Daddy, Poppy, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. Somebody say, I'm God's child. Say, I used to be the devil's child. Come on, can you sing it a little bit? I used to be a devil's child. You, some of you are wild, crazy. How many used to be a devil's child? Yes, 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 you ought to raise your hand. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Now let's go back to look at verse 1 title together as we're working through this. Verse 1 of that chapter, good sir, please. Thank you. The Bible is giving us an illustration of old and new covenant. Somebody say old and new covenant. Thank you. you got to understand that's how your Bible is broke down. Old Testament, New Testament. People have talked to us all the time naively and don't understand why we have an old and why we have a new. Sometimes people say the God of the Bible changed. The Father was mean. Jesus made him nice in the new. That's not true. 
That's incorrect. Other people think that because God did certain things in the old that he's not doing in the new, that he's changed his standards. So he, he maybe not was uh, going from meanie to nicey, but he's going from, hey, I used to be real strict, and now I don't really care. Kind of like how you talk to parents, how they were real strict with the first one, by the sixth one. It's all types of stuff going on in the house. Anybody tracking with me? I used to be very, very strict with the first one, and I had let her hardly use the pad, you know, the technology. Now you come to my house sometimes on certain days, six children all looking at pads, nobody keeping track of time. Can you guys pray for a pastor's house with six children? Amen. And, and that's what sometimes people think. Oh, God started off strict, but then he realized we couldn't do it, so he eased it up. It's not like he was mean God, nice God going from old to new, but it's more like strict God going to like laid back God. That's not true either. And one other uh, misconception that people have is that you Christians, you pick and choose what you want out of the Old Testament and leave the rest there so that you can look good in the New Testament. So, so Christians want to eat bacon, and they go, okay, it was bad in the old, but we eat bacon now. That's cool. That's cool. But you know what? Homosexuality, we don't like that. So we're going to use the Old Testament to now say it's sin in the New Testament. I use the Old Testament to say it's sin in the New Testament. In other words, we just pick and choose. We like bacon, so we've done away with that law. We don't like homosexuals. We keep that law. Somebody say that's untrue as well. The Bible actually gives us the science. Somebody say science is in the Bible. Yeah, did you know science has to do with research and study? Do you know you can do scientific study in the Bible? It's not just a story book or a book of stories. You can research, you can do historical science, you can do natural science, and you can learn to discover the truth of what God is doing. When theologians, scholars look at the old and the new, you know whose first example we go to? Jesus Guess who the next example is? Paul. You are right now at a pivotal point. Everybody get this. You're at a pivotal point in this scripture, chapter 4, to understand why homosexuality is still a sin, but we can eat bacon. Did you know that? Because if I was to ask you right now, tell me why as a Christian you can eat pork, you don't have to worship on the Sabbath, we don't stone your rebellious children, okay? We don't do those things, but we still think homosexuality is a sin. We still believe that idolatry is a sin. If I asked you, most Christians, if I asked you like I asked most Christians, why are those laws there? Most people would not know. They wouldn't know how to discern between the old and the new. Paul and Jesus make it plain. Jesus begins to teach in his life about this as he's fulfilling the law. And by the time we get to Paul and Galatians, now you're reading it, we're beginning to understand. Somebody say the law was a tutor. See, there, there is the language. When we, and it's talking about humanity, when humanity was young and understanding God, God showed them all of these laws. Moses had 613. That was a tutor for humanity. Now, Paul clearly says that when a child has a tutor, does that child have the same rights as the father when a child is in that father's house? No. And he says the child is actually no different than the employee of the father or the servant, slave of the father. And then he says, but when the child grows up, oh, he gets an inheritance. He can now have what the father has. Somebody say the family business. And so when we, thank you, when we look at the scriptures, did you know that the entire Old Testament was a tutor for us to get into the New Testament? The old was not where we were supposed to be. It was supposed to be the new. 
Now, let me ask you something. Let's use my example of moving from one house to another. Do you think that there will be some traditions that I'll leave at this house and I'll start at that house? Do you think there will be some new traditions? Yeah, there probably will. Let me give you an example. Let's say the house that I live in right now, I shovel the snow. That's a tradition. So whenever it snows, I say to the kids, let's go out and shovel. Let's say at the new house, I got too big of a driveway, I hire somebody. What is now that tradition? The tradition used to be Joe shovels snow. But now Joe doesn't shovel snow. So what do we do when we move to the new house and the guy plows the snow? We might make snowmen out of the big hills that the plow makes. Are you guys tracking with me? So the tradition has changed. But now let me ask you this. For me going from one house where I had a tradition where we, we shoveled the snow together to me going to another house where now the tradition is we make snowmen out of what the snow plow does, have I changed in my character? Has my character as a father changed, yes or no? No, and that's what we're supposed to understand is that when God is moving us from one covenant to the next, when he's taking us from the tutor of the Old Testament to the graduation of the New Testament, that God's heart never changed. All that is changing is the traditions or the things that we're going to keep. Now let me ask you, when it comes to God's heart and he says that marriage is between a man and a woman, do you think that heart for marriage and what he created Adam and Eve for, do you think that's going to change in one covenant or another? Because that comes directly from his created order, doesn't it? But do you think that from one covenant to the other, he might change on dietary laws? Yeah, because dietary laws do not hold the same morality as how we do marriage. In other words, when God said don't lie in the Old Testament, do you think he's now going to say in the New Testament, I'm cool with lying? No. Now ask yourself, what does homosexuality fall under? The kind of things that lies fall under, the kind of things that do not steal fall under, the kind of things that, that do not commit adultery fall under, or do you think homosexuality falls under how we plant a field? the clothes or the cloths that we wear and are not allowed to mix, or whether or not we stone a child, do you think it's more towards what we would say ceremonial law homosexuality is, or do you think it's more towards moral law? Sounds like moral, doesn't it? It sounds like homosexuality falls under the same category of don't have adultery, the same category of don't be perverse and have sex with your sister. It seems to fall under that same category, and that's why those who get upset with us, they, they say, now you're calling me a pedophile and all this and that. Hold on. That's not my fault. In the category of sexual morality, it does forbid in that same category of homosexuality all these other nasty things. We're not saying homosexuals are pedophiles. We're not saying homosexuals are having incest. We're just saying if you're going to say it's okay for homosexuality, why is it not okay for incest? If you're going to say homosexuality does not fall under the moral law, it's a civil or cultural tradition, kind of like how Joe's going to change what he does with snow now. You're thinking it's more lighthearted than that. Then why don't we allow all the other ones? Because when they say to us, well, Jesus said nothing about homosexuality. He didn't have to. He didn't say anything about child molestation. Why would Jesus have to talk about child molestation? Why would Jesus have to talk about rape? Why would Jesus have to talk about incest? Why would Jesus have to talk about polyandry? Why would Jesus have to talk about homosexuality? He wouldn't. 
All Jesus would need to do to let you know that the morals of marriage go from the old to the new is say one thing, and that is this. Marriage was made for man and woman. How many know that sets the whole standard now? If I said I'm going to give you a vegetarian cookbook, are you going to look there in the cookbook for steak? I'm asking you a question. You're going to look that for an ingredient? See if there's any steak in this recipe we're making real quick before I go to the store. Are you going to look for ground beef? How much do you think ground beef and steak is going to be discussed in the book that is literally vegetarian recipe? That's what it's called. When Jesus says marriage, one man and one woman, how much more do you want him to talk about homosexuality? He's already told you what he's talking about. This is what he's talking about. Does everybody get that? How much do you want him to talk about child molestation? Some people say that. Well, Jesus didn't say anything about child molestation. He didn't have to. A man will leave a woman. These are grown adults past the age of puberty. He didn't have to talk about incest. So why do we think in the New Testament, or rather, why does the culture think that you're picking and choosing? It's because they don't understand what God has done. Once again, If I move from one house to another, are certain traditions in my house going to change? Absolutely. There will be certain traditions. But will my heart change? Will I now say to my children, it's okay to talk back. We're in a different house now. It's okay for you to lie because we're in a different house now. Come on, somebody say, no, that ain't happening. That is not happening. But what, what, what may change is how we dress. Maybe where we dress has more direct sun. We don't wear as many heavy clothes in the house because we got the house more heated up. Maybe we do more traditions about how we do things outdoors. Maybe we, we move next to a park or we move next to a, a forest or whatever. And all of these things play into our traditions. But my heart and character hasn't changed. What Paul is saying is Jesus has come to set us free from the old to the new covenant. But the heart of God remains the same. It's still the same father. It's still the same moral laws. We're still doing this thing the same way to please our God in the same heart, rather, but the way that we'll do it, it will look a little bit different on the outside. In other words, men won't have to be circumcised. Can I hear an amen for all the men that came to Jesus later on in life? So if you had not been circumcised as a child, you would have to get circumcised now. That's the thing that changed. And does that mean that God changed? No. He's just saying, that was a tradition I wanted them to know. This is the tradition I want you to know. But his heart, what was about circumcision, was about you cutting off things in your life that don't belong. That heart remains. And so when we look at the example, when you're underage, you don't get any privileges yet. you got to be taught by a tutor. Even if your parents passed away and died, most of them set up trust so that at a certain age, when the uh, child is old enough to be responsible, can receive those monies. And some trust put in things that the children have to do. Okay? If I die, if, my, if mom and dad die before my child reaches 18, please put the money in a trust. And before my child gets money at 18, make sure they graduate high school. And then between the ages of 18 and 25, disperse 20%, 20% or whatever, you know, a certain percent every year. That's the wisdom of the world. The world thinks that way. Now, why does God use that example here? Because he's saying that's the way it is with him. When he started with the old and then he brought into the new, he didn't just swap it over. He started with making us understand what was the purpose of those things as they grew up. By the time you get to the prophets, which we would call the last prophets of Malachi and all the rest there, they are now preaching that it's really not about sacrifice. It's really not about fast. It's really not about 
Sabbath, that this is what the Lord wants. He wants a heart after him. So that by the time Jesus comes, Jesus is not making something up. He's showing, look at how I have brought humanity to adulthood to receive what I have to say. And that's why when those who were looking for him saw him, they understood how he was going to come and what he was going to do. Can I hear an amen? Amen. So I'm glad that we're learning there. Now go to verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. Now notice this. There's a mixed congregation. Some are Jews who used to serve the real God, and now they're confused about what do they keep out of the old and bring into the new. They're not sure yet. Paul is going to straighten them out. There are others who came from Mardi Gras-type gods. Has anybody ever seen Mardi Gras, been there Mardi Gras? Don't be ashamed of church. I've preached at 12 Mardi Gras, okay, but I've never attended one as a sinner. I don't know if I would make it the first day in Mardi Gras as a sinner. And I've seen some bad things out there, too. I'm telling you, drunk people getting pulled out of the crowds, people laying in their own puke, all types of fights going on. But Mardi Gras is a wild place, but one of the things you notice that they do there is they they worship the gods of the Greeks. And a lot of the Roman people at that time, though Rome had conquered Greece militarily, that Greece had conquered Rome culturally. So the Romans were there, but they adopted the Greek gods. And so they had all of this worship going for these gods. And many of these gods allowed them to drink and party and to be uh, uh, you know, pornographic. Some of the women worked as priestesses in the temples, and they were sent there like as prostitutes that if people wanted to worship that god, they could have sex with that prostitute give some money and feel like they did a religious duty. Somebody say, that's the devil. But you know, that was a smart devil that came up with that. That was a smart, I'll get more men in church. Are you guys listening? If you had prostitutes, come on, I know it's nasty, but I'm just being honest. How many know the devil's not dumb? How many know he knows what he's doing? So he said, I'm going to figure this out. Man, you all want to go to church, but you also want ladies. I'm going to put women as prostitutes in the church. I'm going to get everybody something to, you know, smile about when they go home. But somebody say, Jesus makes me happy. Amen. Jesus makes me happy. We don't got to use these poles for anything wicked up in here. Can I hear an amen? Jesus makes me happy. But you living in the time of this, that was real. That's why when you look at some of the prohibitions towards the women in the early church, he says, look, don't have braided hair. Don't do these things. Don't do those things. Why? Because that looked like the women of that day. As I said before, why didn't he say to the woman, don't have a ponytail? If you have daughters here, if I put my daughter's hair in braids, does that mean the devil's in her now? She's caught a demon, but I put her hair in a ponytail. She, does, she doesn't have a demon? No, the reason why Paul picked out that particular hairstyle is because at that time in that place, that's what it meant. That's why he said don't wear the pearls. Don't do it like this. Don't do it like that. But you know, at that time, even the women wore nose rings. Why doesn't he forbid them from wearing nose rings? Because the nose ring wasn't an issue. It was this dress that made her look a certain way. In other words, if we were warning about that in our church, we would take the, the, the look of pretty woman and say, don't dress like this when you come to church, right? Like, don't do it like this. Or if people were interrupting the service, being loudmouthed in the middle of service, we'd say, don't act like this. That's what Paul is doing. There's reasons behind all of that. So, so Paul is saying to them, at one point, you who are pagans, you were slaves to false gods. That's what you were like, verse 9. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. So notice this. These pagans come out of paganism. 
Now they're serving Jesus, and what we've learned before is there's Judaizers that say, hey, pagan, if you want to serve the Jewish God, you got to do Jewish things, and that's what's causing the conflict here. And Paul is now saying back to them, think about it, man. When you were pagans doing all that crazy stuff, it didn't work, did it? It didn't make you religious. He said, why do you think now that if you do Jewish stuff, it's going to be any different than your pagan stuff? Whether it was a Jewish circumcision, a Jewish holy day, or a pagan holy day, God is not moving in that way right now. God is moving in the way of the new covenant. Can I hear an amen? That's why he's saying to them, I respect and honor the Old Testament. Those are not pagan days. They were Jewish days. But a Jewish day and a pagan day don't equal salvation. A Jewish day or a pagan day don't equal you getting a new attitude. A Jewish day or a pagan day is not going to fix your family. It doesn't matter if you keep the Sabbath or you go party on Fat Tuesday and worship Bacchus. Neither one of those is going to help you. In the Old Testament, it even, he's, he said before, those were just types and shadows. Can I show that to you? Colossians chapter 2. Turn there with me quickly. Colossians 2.16. When the Jewish people were in the Old Covenant and they were doing the laws correctly, even on their best day, there was no power in any of those laws in and of itself. The only reason why those laws those cultural, traditional laws ever matter is because Christ was standing behind it the whole time. But once Christ said, I'm not about that, there is no more power in it. Check it out. Look at what Colossians says in 2.16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious, a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are like the real popular ones of the Jewish traditions. These are a what? These are a what? Come on, somebody say Shadow. These are a what? Shadow, thank you, of things that were to come. The reality is, however, found in who? Christ. And as I've used it as an example before, I'll do it now. Imagine this right here. Here's my Bible. Well, let me use the phone because uh, this would be like for, for the purpose here. Imagine this is, my, uh, you know, this is my phone and this is the shadow. But imagine this standing for Christ. What would you rather have, Christ or the shadow of Christ? What would you rather have, my phone or the shadow of my phone? Okay, because some people are sleeping. Calvin, will you come take the shadow of my phone? Come up here and grab it. Grab the shadow of my phone. It's right there. Come and grab it. Can you get it? No, you can't do nothing. Let's give it up for Calvin. That was awesome, man. Appreciate that. That was fun. A little fun in church. That's about as much of illustrations as we get. Uh, next week, we might have some of you dress up as construction workers and have a construction site up here, and I'll say, God's working on you, and I'll preach a whole message while you guys work construction. We'll take this to another level. Half tease. That's what my friends do all the time. Let's come up with an illustration. I'm just old school. I go right to the black and white of the scriptures. Amen. Now, check this out. You have all of these days going on, and there is good that's happening in all of these days. But according to Paul, why is the good happening in the shadow? Because Christ is the reality. Christ is the reality. But if Christ is not coming in the Sabbath anymore like he used to, or if Christ is not coming on the Jewish festival like he used to, is there anything in the shadow that you want? No, if the shadow is not showing us Christ and pointing us to Christ, Christ is not involved in that. Do you want the shadow in and of itself? No, and then what do shadows in this situation re represent is that Christ is coming in the reality. See, once I move my hand, see, there's no shadow here now. Once I put my hand in the light and I start bringing it closer, there's that shadow. See, Christ comes to earth. He fulfills the law and he comes right next to us. Boom, now we have God in our midst. That's why the Bible says all of these things are found, the reality of all of these things is found in Christ. 
The Sabbath, that shows us in Christ we have rest. Come unto me, and all you who are weary and heavy laden, you shall find rest for your soul. Christ is the rest. All of those cutting off things like the, um, the, the, the circumcision and all that has to do with God cutting out the sin out of your heart. All the dietary laws and the dress and all of those traditions have to do with being a separate people, not being like the people of the world. Does everybody get Christ as a reality? Amen. Going back to the notes, thank you. Paul says, you guys used to do all of this when you were pagans. It didn't work. Now you're trying to do it like the Jews, and it didn't work for them. Look at verse 12. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. How did he become like them? The Bible says to a Gentile, he became like a Gentile. When he came around them, he didn't say to them, hey, man, start keeping the Jewish law like I kept it from a child. Hey, I used to go to Jewish school. I'm going to teach you how to do all these things. He said, no, when I came around you, I was just like you. I, I didn't live by those things. But now you want to go back to those things. He says, no, I plead with you. Become like me. I'm chill. Everybody say he's chill. Paul is chill. He's not worried about all of that. For I became like you. You did me no wrong because in some people's minds, everybody think about this. Some of these Gentiles had been so convinced by those Judaizers that they were so wrong for doing what they do, uh, do it, doing what they did. They thought that they were polluting the church. Man, I'm a Gentile and I had touched pork and then I walked into the church. I did the church wrong. I defiled the church because remember, they couldn't even touch a, dead, touch a dead body or touch pork and come into the temple. So these Judaizers started saying, man, look, you touched pork. You, you went to a funeral, did all that. And then you came to church. Look at how wrong you did the church. And Paul is saying, man, look, you didn't do me wrong. If that was what it was about, I would have told you. I would have said, stop doing those things. He says, as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. So in other words, he was sick and he had to stay there with them. We don't know what uh, made him sick, maybe just traveling, maybe something going on. And so he's with them and he's not feeling well. And it says that you treated me as if I was an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? Like, why don't you trust me? I'm not trying to lead you astray. I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. This is where some people think he was having problems with his vision. Verse 16, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Highlight that right there. Nudge your neighbor. Nudge your neighbor and tell them the scripture. Have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Don't ever be mad at somebody for telling you the truth. Amen? If they truly love you, they'll tell you the truth. How many of you have ever left a function, went to your car, saw something in your teeth, and got mad at everybody not telling you that? I'm telling you, I have been your pastor. I have preached up here. I have had issues. That's why I need a rag up here for over here. You listen. And I have talked to y'all with stuff hanging out my nose and my mouth and crispies here and all this, and nobody say anything. I get to the car, flip down, see how I'm looking. I'm like, dear God, I had a boogie. I had this. And I know I talked to four of y'all. And four of you, nobody said anything. But how many know if you love somebody, you're going to hand them a minute if their breath stinks? How many know you're going to hand them a tissue if they got something in their nose? Paul is saying, I love you enough to tell you the truth. And the truth to this was actually you don't have to do all of those things. Go to verse 17, please. Those people are zealous to win you over. Who are those people as we've learned? They are new Jewish Christians who think everybody's got to follow the Jewish traditions. 
They've come now into the church, and they sound sophisticated, and you might meet them in your life. They might say, man, look, do you keep the Sabbath? Do you eat pork? Do, do, you know, and they'll throw back to the Old Testament, and they'll say, boy, I bet you're a pastor. He keep the tithe. He keep the tithe. But does he keep this? Does he keep? And, and they'll try to convince you that there's something going wrong between the way Christians have been harmonizing the old and the new. That's what was happening in that time. These people were saying, hey, did your apostle tell you? Did he tell you you need to be circumcised? Look right here. It says you need to get circumcised. Did your apostle, did apostle Paul tell you that you got to go to church on the Sabbath, not the Lord's Day when he resurrected on Sunday? You need to go this day. And Paul is saying, look, they're zealous to win you over, but not for good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that they may, so that you may have zeal for them. Highlight that, please, zeal for them. Every false teacher that I have ever seen is always a narcissist. And anyone that is a narcissist always leads to false teaching. I'm not saying all narcissist pastors go to hell. I'm just saying there is a lot of narcissism behind these pulpits. There are pimps pimping behind the pulpit. And what they do is they use their authority to make you zealous for them instead of zealous for the word of God. That's why they can't go verse by verse through the scriptures. That's why every week you're the woman at the well. Every week you're the woman with the issue of blood. Every week you're Lazarus. Every week you're something that's busted and disgusted in the scripture, and they're going to preach you happy. Because what they want to do is get you suckling upon their, their teeth to have you come to them like they're mama cow, like they're, they're Bessie. You're going to come and, and just soak it up every time you come. And the problem with that is, is they want you to get those endorphins released and now see them as your source of pleasure. Because this preacher preaches a certain way, you shout, you get happy, your endorphins release, now you subscribe to that pastor and whatever they say and whatever they do. Because it must be right because it feels good. How many know that feelings can feel good and still be wrong? How many of you have felt good eating certain foods and then it felt wrong a couple days later? How many looked at the scale and said something's not right about this scale? But it felt right when you were eating it. When you were eating it, you're like, this feels so good. There's, there's nothing wrong right now at 10 o'clock, me making myself a chocolate chip cookie dough milkshake, adding some M&Ms with my skim milk, because I got to do skim milk when I make my milkshakes. Skim milk, y'all. Almond milk, to be exact. How many know that it's going to taste good at 10 o'clock at night? But, it, but that moment on the lips, lifetime on the hips, can I get an amen from somebody watching their way? New Year resolutions coming up in this place. I'm still fighting for my six-pack. I want to lose 30 pounds, get down to 200. Amen. I want to give my wife something to talk about. Praise the Lord. I want her to say, I can't wait to get home and see my man. That's so I want her to be. I want to be my wife's boo forever, forever her boo. Now listen, they want you to be zealous for them, but they don't go through the scriptures. They don't teach you the word of God. They, they twist it, and then they don't want to be examined. Be leery of any Christian or any teacher that doesn't go through the scriptures. If they just go a verse here, a verse there, a verse here, a verse here, like as if they're playing Holy Ghost hopscotch with the scriptures, we're going to go from here to over here to back over here. To over. Be careful with Holy Ghost hopscotch. It generally leads into heresy. Also be careful with people who always got to tell you through their book, their conference, their Zoom meeting, their private phone call, their prayer meeting, something that you can't get anywhere else. Only prophet so-and-so can give this to you. Only this teacher can give this to you. The Bible says the scripture is not meant for private interpretation. Everything that's ever been taught in these scriptures should be able to be examined under these lights with other elders and students of the word to examine it. Amen? 
And this is a part of our church, and I want to encourage you with this. You are never wrong to ask questions here. You are never wrong to disagree here. You're never wrong to bring up things that you may have thought about. We are not against that here. We are like Spartans here. We don't want you like simpletons here. There is no um, Mama Bessie cow up here trying to milk all y'all. You, you listening to me? My heart is to give you your own steak knife, your own fork, and to teach you how to eat the meat of the word. Amen? Now look at verse 18. It is fine to be zealous. It's fine to say, I like this preacher, or I like this book, or I like... It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. So don't do it just to be a trendy Christian. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. How many parents uh, highlight that? I am perplexed about you. How many parents have said that before to your children? How many husbands have said that to their wives before? Come on, you're all quiet in this place right now. Is this a Presbyterian church or what? Man, I have looked at my wife a time or two. Can I just confess right now? I have looked at my wife a time or two and said, I am perplexed about you. Have you ever looked at your spouse? Have you ever looked at your children and said, I'm perplexed? Paul is at his wit's end. He doesn't know how to fix the problem. In other words, he has to trust God. There are times where you'll try to talk it through and you can't fix it. There are times with my wife and I where words won't fix the problem. There's times with my children. We have to go to God in prayer and look at his word. How many believe marriages would be held together if in their perplexity they went to the word of God? How many believe children and parents would get along if in their perplexity they went to the word of God? How many believe our governors and our leaders and our representatives would get right and do the right thing if they went in their perplexity about these difficult situations to thus says the Lord. Paul is letting us know he is a normal guy. He is perplexed. He doesn't know in his flesh how to fix this. As he has said before, he said, I don't get it. When I was with you, it was as if you could see Christ clearly. Now it's like you're bewitched. All you see is this legalism. That's why he's trying to get them back to the scriptures, saying, go back to understanding Abraham. He asked them that simple question about Abraham. Was Abraham made a righteous person? Was he justified before God because of all the righteous things? he did or because he had faith and it was credited to him, given as a gift of righteousness. And we would all say faith comes first. Amen. It was the faith before the works. Now let's go into our final example. Thank you for your patience today as we conclude chapter four. It is one example from 21 all the way here to verse 31. I'll see how much I need to read, uh, but I think it's a, it's a good example if I read all 10 verses. You all ready for 10 verses if I got to read it? Because I think it might stick better together. Here we go. Tell me what you want. Uh, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? So those of you who want to go back, tell me if you really want to do this. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. What was the slave woman's name? Hagar. What was the free woman's name? Sarah. How many see it on the board? Okay, now you see it. How many didn't see it before? Let's just go through it again. Who was the slave woman? Hagar, who was the free woman? Sarah, great. We got the scriptures if we need to go back and check the script, okay? We can go back to Genesis 16, but let's read through this. Now, verse 23, his son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of the divine promise. 
So we've been on this for a while, and we're going to move hopefully past this now into chapter 5. But these series through chapters 3 and 4 of messages, I've done I think 5, has all been on children of the promise. Everybody say, I'm a child of the promise. Amen. Now notice what that meant. Hagar was just Abraham getting together with Hagar, and there came the baby. But Sarah was barren, and God did a miracle in Sarah's heart, uh, Sarah's body, so that she could be pregnant. That's the difference. One was just normal sex, making a baby. The other one, yes, involved sex, but it needed a miracle to happen. Verse 24, these things are being taken figuratively. Highlight the word figuratively for me. This is what I want to say as a pastor. If it's not being told that it's figurative, don't take it figuratively. Sometimes I see people run through the scriptures, this is figurative, this is figurative, I believe this means this. And it's like, no, you're just making up stuff as you go along. Well, when David had five stones at the brook, it was the five-fold ministry. And I just wrote a new book, brother, on the five stones of God, the five-fold ministry. Do you see how people take allegory, figurative stuff out the Bible, sell you their book? Well, when Jesus did this, and then the fish gave out the, the coin, the fish that's going to give out the coin is my bank account. I want everyone here to sow $1,000 into the fish, and out of the $1,000 that you sow in will come money into your account. Somebody say, money cometh. Don't say it. I'm just kidding. I used to have a church friend that used to go to place, a friend that went to churches like that. Money cometh, money cometh. And, and they take everything figurative. And then you try to teach them about the scripture. They don't know how to go verse upon verse. Everything has been taken so figurative. They don't even know that a rock is just a rock, dude. And why did he pick up five? I don't know. Probably because he had brothers. The Bible says later on that Goliath had some other brothers. Or he might have thought, hey, if I miss, I'm going to take another shot. We don't know what the five literally was in his pocket for, but I can guarantee he was not thinking to himself about the fivefold ministry. Now, I do, I do appreciate uh, preachers who like to tie things together and make it, uh, you know, relevant to your life. Uh, you know, woman, thou art loose. You're loose from your debt. You're loose from all these. And I appreciate that preaching. But you know what? There was a woman that's sick that can now straighten up her back. That's literally what happened that day. Let's pray for sick people, right? But the idea is take everything figurative. Her being crippled now means you crippled by debt. How many crippled by debt want to get set free? Oh, man, y'all ain't helping me. Y'all too smart. You ain't gonna, you ain't gonna whoop with me right now. But that's how we were trained. Just take something in the scriptures, tie it together, and then you got yourself a revelation, man. This is illumination. Nobody's heard this before. I have been with pastors. This is no joke. I'm talking large churches. I have been with pastors, and I have said, man, what's God been saying to you lately? He goes, oh, I can't share. You might take it and preach it. That's literally what he said to me. That's literally what he said to me. I'm like. I already got the Bible, man. Like, you got the secret sauce. Like, now you got another scripture out the Bible that I don't know about, and you got to be the first to bring it? But, you know, that's how, that's how a lot of Pentecostal preachers think. Man, I just got a revelation. I've, I, God just told me what this means. Thou art loose. God just told me what the five rocks are. God just told me what this meant. I, I can't tell anybody the two loaves and the five fishes, you know, what that really is. I can't tell anybody. But, I, but God told me. That's foolishness. Somebody say that's foolishness. At the very least, all that is, is just God trying to give you encouragement, but it's certainly not where we get doctrine from. 
So notice when Paul steps over that line. Paul now is going to go into that line of figurative speech. But no, he notice he tells you. He goes, these things, the two women we just talked about and their two children, we're going to take figurative right now. So as a good Bible student, you can use figurative language. It is not wrong. And Jesus used parables and so forth. But when you do it, you got to let everybody know, hey, this is, this is figurative now. We don't mean this literally. We can see five in the New Testament, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. We can see five stones. And you know what? We're going to use this figuratively to share how God's five-fold ministry is going to knock the devil out. Okay, that's fine. Somebody say, that's fine. You, you would be okay with that, right? As long as they walked humbly with it, and that's what Paul is doing. He's saying, you understand this historical story. There was a, a real situation here where two women had two different children. One required a miracle, and one was because Sarah and um, her family was getting desperate to have a child. That's why she said, be with Hagar, okay? Now he says, figuratively, figuratively this is what I want to use it for. Paul saying, this is what he's going to do with it. The women represent two covenants. Can I hear two covenants? Two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai. Where did the Ten Commandments come from? Mount Sinai. Thank you. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Hagar represents the old covenant and those who are slaves to the law. Okay? I have the story there of Genesis, if you want to go check it. Now, verse 25. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. Why are those Jews at that time, this was probably written around 50 A.D., before the destruction of 70 A.D. of Jerusalem, so there's literally a temple there. Jerusalem is not sacked and, and devoured yet by Rome. Why is he saying those Jews in that place are slaves? It's because they're not in the new covenant. Jesus used the law to graduate them from the tutor to the inheritance to now receive the promise. But these Jews have not gone over into the new covenant. They're remaining in the old covenant, and therefore they don't have the privileges of the new. They're living as if they are slaves. Now, once again, he says, now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she's in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above, somebody say heavenly Jerusalem, she is our mother. It's not Mary. Mary's not our mother. Mary was the mother of Jesus. We do not pray to Mary. We do not treat her differently than any other righteous woman of the Bible. Any language that is used as mother, notice it's in the conversation of figurative. Everybody say figurative. So whatever we hear about us having a mother, it is figurative. And does it apply to Mary? No. What does it apply to? Sarah, who represents a spiritual Jerusalem in heaven. And in the book of Revelation, where does new Jerusalem come from? From heaven to earth. After, as we believe here, there's a rapture. We wait seven years for the tribulation to end. We come back to rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And then the new Jerusalem is in or upon the earth. And it's in the uh, it's where we dwell for the rest of eternity. New Jerusalem is where we dwell the rest of eternity. So think of it this way: rapture, heaven. Seven years of tribulation, come back, rule and reign with Christ, thousand years, then heavenly Jerusalem is where we dwell. That's the way uh, we see the end times. So if you see it differently, that's up to you. But the bottom line is, where is Jerusalem right now? Uh, Jerusalem is where? Above. Somebody say above. She's above. Our heavenly 
uh, 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 mother, as it were, <laughs> our heavenly mother even sounds weird to say, but the mother that we are considered to be a part of is in heaven. And the father doesn't have an actual mother like some cults teach. The mother represents the bride of Christ. So you are a mother and you're also a bride to Jesus when you are up in heaven. So how many know there are Christians up in heaven that count now for the mother? But at the marriage supper of the Lamb, they count for the bride. And it's not like Jesus marries the mother and the daughter. It's not sick like that. Because also, remember, men become a bride. All of this is figurative language. In different stories of the Bible, we take figurative language. So what is the figurative language here? Jerusalem is our mother in heaven. She's not equal to God. She's literally the church, the righteous. And she's represented by Sarah. For it is written, this is what happened to Sarah. Be glad, barren woman, this is talking about Sarah, you who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her, hus than of her who has a husband. Now that's speaking to Sarah. Now go into uh, the Bible to book of Revelation. Everybody go, ooh, going to Revelation. We're going to learn about the woman Israel. Go to Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. How do you remember when we were in book of Revelation, we learned about this woman? Does anybody remember her? She's uh, chased by the dragon. But look at her here. I, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain. She gave birth. So what does the woman stand for? She stands for heavenly Jerusalem. But which woman of heavenly Jerusalem do we know gave birth? Uh, and we're going to know it's going to be Jesus. Who is that? Mary. So everybody get this. Sarah is the example of heavenly Jerusalem in the, covenant, in the covenantal talk. She represents the new covenant. Her name is what? Sarah. Mary is being representative here of the new covenant and of Christ being born and of the heavenly Jerusalem. So anybody that would say, oh, uh, Mary is our mother because heavenly Jerusalem is our mother, and then now we pray to her and believe all these other ridiculous things. They're totally out of alignment because if what could be said of Mary is true and makes her our mother, then we would have two mothers. We would also have Sarah. Does everybody get that? Do you understand how theology right there just crushed the idea that Mary is somehow distinct as a mother to all Christians? She is simply an example. Here she is an example of Israel being used to bring the Messiah. Going back to the notes, please. Who does Sarah represent here? Sarah represents the church. So if Roman Catholics want to take the language of mother, apply it to Mary, and now say she gets all of these privileges, which, by the way, even if she was our mother, we still don't pray to our mother. We only pray to God the Father because Mary is not God. She's not all-knowing, not all-powerful. She never answers a prayer. Can I hear an amen to that? But I'm trying to walk you through this. If they want to make the example, well, here's a mother we have in heaven. Now we're going to connect that to Mary. No, because we would have two mothers. Go back up a little bit, please. Go back up. Notice what the figurative language points to, the covenants. And then go up a little bit more when it says who the two women are. The two women is not Mary and Hagar. The two women are Sarah and Hagar. One is the free woman and one is the slave woman. Thank you. Now let's go on down. Did I say that correctly, Sarah and Hagar? Okay, good. Now let's go back to the passage there in Galatians chapter 3. Now it says, now uh, let's go up to verse 26 so we can just tie it together. Look at verse 26. 
But the Jerusalem that is above is free. She is our mother. And then we're thinking about Sarah. For it is written, be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than those uh, of the one who had a husband. Now let's keep going. Next verse, please. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of what? Promise. What are you a child of? Promise. Okay? That was his whole entire point of the figurative language there. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. So Hagar's son, Ishmael, kind of messed around and teased with Isaac because he was a little bit older. Ishmael was. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. And that's part of the story. Hey, it's okay now to send Hagar on her way with Ishmael because I'm going to bless Isaac uniquely, and Hagar will have her own blessing with Ishmael, but Isaac and Ishmael will not share the same blessing. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. So brothers and sisters, who are we like? We are like Isaac. We are children of promise. We are not born like Hagar in a slave uh, of the slave woman. We're born of the power of the Spirit. Verse 30. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Here is the last verse. Get ready to shout amen because you made it to verse, uh, the last verse of chapter 4. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Give it up for Jesus. Amen. Vinny, would you come, please? What an accomplishment. I know it's not always a shout and message, but how many learned something today? Let's tie it together. A lot of application. A lot of application, but let's tie it together. When we look at the scriptures, we see that there's a reason for the old and the new covenant. The reasons for the old and the new covenant is Christ revealing himself through the laws as a tutor, and then Christ coming to die on the cross for our sins that we have done against his first law and covenant. Because we were under the tutor for as long as we were, we should recognize how much we need Jesus. That's why if we're preaching the gospel, it's good to start off with people to show them their lawbreakers instead of just focusing on how much Jesus loves them and wants them to go to heaven. Because how many know everybody wants to go to heaven in that sense? Everybody wants to go. But it's not a question of, hey, do you want to go to heaven? Great, let's pray this prayer together. It's, do you want to repent of the laws you have broken so that you might be forgiven, have a changed life, and have a citizenship to the new Jerusalem? You see, the new Jerusalem is a place of holiness. The new Jerusalem, where it's in heaven right now, known as our mother, is a place of purity. It's a a place where people love God, and they love his morals. You see, if you went to heaven and you really wanted God to be different in his morals, you wouldn't want that God to be your Lord and Savior, even if you were in heaven. In other words, if you think about C.S. Lewis and some of the philosophy he brought towards this, people go to hell by their own choice. Why? Because I don't want to serve a God that says this is wrong. I'll never. You ever heard people talk like that? Well, then they wouldn't want to go to heaven then. Because in heaven, we worship a God who sends people to hell. But it's their choice, but we still know he, he's the one who makes the final judgment. And be, I would never worship a God who made a hell for people to go in. I would never worship a judgmental God. Okay, you don't have to. You will confess him as Lord as you're on your way to hell, but you'll never have to be in his presence and worship him. 
How many, though, know that those of us who are going to heaven are worshiping him because of his holiness, because of his great character? We're not ashamed of God's law, in other words, okay? Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't love sinners or want to forgive us. It says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So here's the way I like to preach the gospel with having this in mind, is I'll use the moral code that's in both the Old and the New Testament, things that show the heart of God, not lying, not committing adultery, not taking things that don't belong to you, placing nothing before God. And I ask people, I know you want to go to heaven, and I know you probably believe in God and that God loves you and all this, and so much of that is true, but have you ever taken something that doesn't belong to you? And if they go, yeah, I've done that, and I go, oh, okay. So what do we call somebody who takes something that doesn't belong to them? A thief, right? Then I say, well, have you ever told a lie? And don't lie right now. You ever told a lie? Yeah, I've told a lie. What do we call people who tell lies? Liars. Have you ever lusted in your heart towards someone you weren't married to? Yeah. What do we call that? We call that adultery of the heart. Have you ever taken the name of the Lord in vain? Have you ever used his name in vain, not in prayer, not to praise, but because you stubbed your toe? You should have said, oh, Hitler, but you said, oh, Jesus, and you weren't praying. Are you listening? Oh, yeah, I've done that. And I say, okay, well, let's take from the age of your consciousness where you were aware of right and wrong. Let's make that average age for everybody seven years old. Let's just say seven. It could be 10. It could be whatever. I do believe in an age of accountability. It's another discussion how God will deal with children if they die without uh, repenting of their sins. But let's say seven years old. And I go, how old are you now? Let's say they go, I'm 30. I'm 30. Okay, so 30 minus 7 is 23 years. Now on average, how many of those commands do you think you have broken a day? The lying, the taking something that doesn't belong to you, taking his name in vain, putting things before God. Okay? We didn't get into the jealousy. One, have you ever been envious of what somebody else has? What do we call that person? A hater. And they go, oh, well, maybe only a couple. Okay, so maybe three to five times a day. Three to five times a day. Okay. 23 years have 365 days in them times five sins you have committed on average a day, this is your debt towards God, 41,975. And then here's where the mic drops, because I asked them, how many sins did Adam and Eve commit to be kicked out of the garden and lose their relationship with God? How many? You got quite a bit more than that. You see how we use that to help people with the law? But now if you just left them there, have they been saved? No, you just tutored them. You just tutored them. You just got them to the point to understand two plus two is four. You just were like a guardian to them. You just, come on, everybody get the illustration Paul is saying. You have just been like a tutor to them. But is that salvation? No, what do you bring up now? Jesus Christ who came in the flesh to die on the cross for these sins. And now Jesus is asking them, to be born again because in their first life their first try at this they have done miserable and we have all sinned haven't we and fallen short of the glory of God and so now we say guess what there is a better covenant there is a way to go from the tutor directly to the inheritance having a relationship with your father and receiving all of his promises and it's through Jesus Christ 
And then what you could share with them is an example like how Paul caved them. You could say, think about the Old Testament like how Hagar was in this story and how she was a slave. She was a bit mistreated. And even though she got some good things, she didn't have nowhere near what this other one had with Sarah and Isaac. And then you could ask them, which one do you want to be? Do you want to be the one that's in this situation as a slave or do you want to be in this situation as someone who is free? And of course, I want to be free. And now outside of this context, we could show them Jesus' words. Please go with me to John chapter 8 in closing. John chapter 8. How many want to hear from Jesus? Somebody say, just give me Jesus. Come on, I just want Jesus. I know Paul has been preaching, but I got to listen to Jesus. Get me to the red letter. Somebody say, give me Jesus. I want Jesus. I know all scripture is inspired. But there's something about when you get to the red letters of Jesus. Doesn't it just hit a certain way? Come on, somebody. I just want Jesus. I love the way Jesus said it. John chapter 8. Just give me Jesus. This is what he said to them. And they were the ones that were enslaved. 8, 31 through 32. He said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you hold on to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. See, then you'll get free. Come on, somebody say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I'm so glad that Jesus gave me his teachings. The Bible starts off in John chapter 1. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses was just a tutor helping us to understand how great Jesus was going to be when he showed up. Now, I know some people think, well, does that just mean we do whatever we want? No, literally it says you got to hold to Jesus' teachings. You don't just throw off Moses' stuff and say, well, I can just do whatever I want. I've got sloppy agape, greasy grace. No, you hold on to what Jesus said. Jesus said, love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus said, treat your neighbor as you want to be treated. Jesus said, don't lust in your heart. Don't get cursed, no, no, get mad and curse out your neighbor and all of these things. You just follow Jesus. And in that moment of following Jesus from day one all the way to the end, you are free. You're free to be holy. You're free to have a good attitude. You are free to get along with your wife. Where did my wife go? Come on, somebody. 16 years of marriage. You're free to be the parent that God calls you to be. You are free to be off of every addiction. As a Christian, we don't ever have to be slaves again. We don't ever have to be in bondage again. I love how Paul said it with what Jesus said. Paul said, you were once slaves already. Why do you want to go back to that? Jesus came to set us free. The devil, he's a liar. He's a wicked taskmaster. He'll keep you bound up, telling you lies about yourself, just so you'll stay more with him. But the Bible says, look at it in verse 36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. There is nothing that the devil can do to get in our way. There is no hindrance. There is no temptation. There is no mistake. There is nothing of your past that can hold back your freedom. That's why I pray as a pastor that we got something out of Galatians that goes deep within our souls. I know it's a lot of teaching during this time, but I pray it's the foundation of our life because don't let anybody bring you back into bondage. 
live free by the power of Jesus Christ. Amen? It is for freedom that Jesus set us free. Can we stand up today? Can we give it up one more time to our liberator, Jesus Christ? Lord, you have liberated us. Band and altar workers, would you come in an attitude of prayer? Those who are with us now and can hear me and you don't know Jesus, why don't you repent of your sins right now, just where you're standing? Ask Jesus to forgive you. Everybody else who's already saved, start thanking him for what he's done in your life. But right now, if you're here and you don't know him as your liberator, maybe you've been religious, maybe you've been trying to keep a whole bunch of commandments, but you haven't been set free yet, ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Liberate us, Jesus. Set us free. Maybe you're a Christian and you're here today and you've been going back to your old way of life. These chains have been coming around you and the different habits and thoughts and words and things that hold you back. Would you ask Jesus to set you free and receive a breakthrough right now? Father, I pray for everyone here who may not know you to come to know you as their liberator. You came to set the captives free. And I also pray today for Christians who may be bound up in their sin and they think that they have to pray more or be more religious or go to church more to find freedom. Lord, those, those things may be good. You're the only one that can set free. More church can't set them free. Just a Bible study can't set them free, oh Lord. But you set people free. A few moments right now, look at your hearts. If you need prayer work, uh, help uh, praying. We have prayer workers up here to encourage you. If you want to accept Christ today or you want to get free from anything that's in your life. And then lastly, those of us who would say, okay, I'm free. I'm a Christian, but I want to be an agent of change wherever I go. Would you start to pray for your marriage if you're married? If you're in a a family, you know, if your children, pray for your parents or parents, pray for your children. Would you just start to pray that God will use you as an agent of change to bring freedom on your job, in your community? Come on, we want to bring freedom. To those who are still under the bondage of this world, we're children of promise. And we want to see them join us. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. I'm free. I'm free. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. I'm free. Who the sun. Oh, I'm free. Come on, who the sun sets free? Would you worship as we get ready to dismiss? Just a few moments if you would like to come up for prayer. Feel free to worship, but make sure you don't leave out if you're the same way you came. Who the sun? Sing it out a few more times. Who? Free indeed. Be free today. Children of promise. Don't let anything hold you back. I'm free. I'm free. I'm free. Come on, who wants to be free from smoking or vaping? If that's something in your life, come on up right now. We'll pray for you to be free. Who wants to be free from pornography or sexual addiction? Come on up, we'll pray for you. Who today wants to be free from stinking thinking, depression, anxiety, things that you deal with? We will 
going to believe God today for mental freedom. Who wants to be free from their past? Broken relationships. Come on. Who wants to be free from nightmares of the things that haunt you? Be free. Who the sun? Who the sun 